Hi, this is Robert Kiyosaki, and you're listening to Entrepreneur Circle with Eric Cabral. On this episode, you don't really know in advance which ideas are good or bad, so it's just like people. So you have a business idea, okay, here's here's the easiest way we could try it. Did it work? No, let's move on to the next one. People say, oh, ideas are a dime a dozen, execution's everything. That is so incorrect, that statement. A good idea is hard. You have to have good execution ideas to execute in a smart way. Hey there, folks. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Entrepreneur Circle podcast, where we inspire you by talking to entrepreneurs and business owners about mindset, goals, vision, tips and strategies on how to crush life and business. I am your host, Eric Cabral, real estate investor and a creative. I've been in the creative industry for over 20 years, got my start in New York City as a junior art director, and made my way up the corporate ladder to become the creative director at the number one pharma company in the world. That was until I decided to hang up my corporate hat and start my own creative agency called On Air Brands, where we broadcast your brand and your message using social media and live stream events. Hit us up at info at onairbrands.com to learn more. Also, like subscribe and share this podcast on social we greatly appreciate you for it and also don't hesitate to send us any feedback that you may have because we always love 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 hearing from you before we jump into the show i'd like to share what some of our sponsors partners and friends of the show have to offer you Hello, this is Josh McCowan, CEO of Viva May Hospitality and the beautiful Renault Resort Winery. I have to tell you, the secret's out. And the secret is On Air Brands. On Air Brands Creative Agency, which specializes in launching podcasts, transforming live events into live streaming events, and social media marketing soup to nuts. On Air Brands has changed the game. There'll never be a day from here forward when you and I and our companies don't need to be on the air. Every brand needs to be on the air, but so few know that. So it's great to work with a group that are ahead of the curve and to find a company that has been built on the core foundation of the future of marketing. If you're ready to broadcast your brand like they've done for my brands, take the next step and make a change that can transform your business. Reach out to On Air Brands today. That's onairbrands.com. Yes, onairbrands.com. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the Entrepreneur's Circle. A momentous occasion here because we are celebrating our 50th episode of the Entrepreneur's Circle. It's been a long road, a wonderful journey that's been so much fun for me and all of our guests and all the people involved in our team putting the show together. So today I have a special guest a man by the name of Mr. James Altucher. And if you haven't heard of him, I am more than happy to be the one to introduce him to you. So a little bit about James, it's actually a lot of it because he's done a ton, is he's written 20 books and thousands of articles. One of those books was a best-selling book called Choose Yourself, which was named by Business Week as one of the top 12 business books of all time. That's right. He wrote a book that's considered 
one of the best books of all time. So I highly recommend picking up Choose Yourself by James Altucher. And then also another one that's also as good uh, called Reinvent Yourself. So be on the lookout for those. He's also an investor running venture capital funds, hedge funds. He's an angel investor. He's also a board member to a diverse number of companies. He's funded 20 companies of his own, ranging from amazing deals to spectacular flops. And he talks about that in his content. Look for it. He's got a unique voice. He's very vulnerable in his writing, which is what I love about him. And he talks about failure, but then he talks about what he learned from it, which is gold. He's also built a fortune. And this is what's unique about James and what I love about him also is he built a fortune for in the dot-com era with a company called Reset. And Reset was a web development company when there were no web development companies. It didn't exist. So he worked for HBO. He told them that I'll work late nights. I'm going to build an, something called an intranet. They just let him do it. And it was uh, they were so impressed by it, he was given the keys to build HBO's website. So imagine this. You're in the 90s. There are no websites that exist for companies. And he built HBO's very first website. It gets recognized, obviously, from the industry. Now he's being approached by gigantic corporations like Amex, Con Ed, The Matrix Trilogy, the movie industry, the music industry, uh, like Loud Records, which is Wu-Tang's label, Bad Boy and Interscope, <laughs> Sony, Time Warner, New Line Cinema, all these huge corporations start to reach out and say, hey, we want what you built for HBO and Amex. And of course, he becomes a multi-millionaire. Okay, but here's the crazy part. He loses it all. He lost all of it, like millions and millions of dollars down to 100, 147, I think was the number left in his bank account. So here's the cool thing about him. He built it back up again. He built it up to millions of dollars and then lost it again. I'm unreal, right? So this guy did it not twice, but three times, maybe even I think on the fourth. I know that he's doing really well right now, built everything back up to $15 million, lost it all and just rinse and repeat. And he's not necessarily doing this on purpose, but he's learning a ton while he's doing it. And he has so much unique perspective that not many people have, okay? Because he's got some sort of formula in his mind uh, where he can take something and build it and sell it. And he knows how to build the correct systems and the right business strategies. The guy's just a brilliant mind. And in this conversation, we talk about things that you wouldn't think typically are going to be discussed on a business podcast such as this. And I honestly had a list of questions that I thought I was going to ask him, but we started going down a really fun road of talking about pop culture and television and movies. And I, we were having such a good time that I realized we're talking about stuff that's super fun, and I hope you enjoyers listen, uh, listeners enjoy it. And the cool thing, though, when I listen back to it is every conversation we have, although it may sound like we're just talking about a show like Seinfeld or, 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 or Lost, there's a thread of business there's always some sort of lesson to be learned relating back to business. So 
really, you're going to enjoy this episode for all the fun we're having and all the shows that you've probably watched and movies that you've watched. But yes, there are golden nuggets that are threaded throughout Easter eggs, so to speak, that you can find throughout this episode that gives you some advice in business and in life. And at the tail end of it, we go deep. Then we start to talk about business and my business in particular. And he gives me some really aha moments that are going to change my life and have changed my life since. So folks, without further ado, apologies for that, but it needed to be done because James is just a wealth of knowledge and I wanted you to understand the magnitude of this individual and how important this episode is, which is why I saved it for the 50th episode of Entrepreneur's Circle. Thank you very much, everyone, for supporting and tuning in. Enjoy this show with James Altucher. It's funny because I don't get to talk with about TV. Entrepreneurs, you know, nobody watches TV anymore, me included. Even people used to tell me when my kids were very little, oh, I never let my kids watch TV. Yeah. And I'm like, really? Because... Why not expose your kids to tens of thousands of stories mm -hmm. uh, so that they can safely see all of these kind of intense things in life without actually having to experience them? You can't possibly experience all these things in one lifetime. So if they're in the house anyway and not running around in the playground, which is, of course, better, why not expose them to great art and storytelling. And again, storytelling is so primal to our evolution. It's a way to um, safely experience harder conditions so you don't have to live through them, but you, but your body knows how to, and your mind knows how to deal with them. Yeah. I mean, I agree. The, the thing that I have challenges with is like, so we're raising two little ones. My oldest is five and there's a two-year-old and my wife doesn't want to expose them to television at all. She goes, because then it's replacing their creativity, which I get to a degree. But like you, I grew up, I was a latchkey kid and I was always watching television. And um, it really helped my creativity, like writing and, and, and drawing. And it just yeah. inspired me. Yeah. And the, you know, the arc and every good thing that they're going to watch. So let's let's discount local news. Let's discount, right. you know, 99.999% of reality TV. And let's just assume they're watching like good television, you know, appropriate for their age group. Um, then they're going to get, get exposed to the arc of the hero over and over again, which is mm. kind of the DNA of every single work of art in history. So they'll, they'll put in their 10,000 hours learning <laughs> the arc of the hero. And, uh, you know, I see her point, like they could be reading books, they could be painting, but they're not going to do that all the time anyway. Like, it's not like anybody can be creative for five, six hours a day. You should be creative for like one to three hours a day, you know, and, and rejuvenate. And television exposes you to different ideas. And yeah. I was always inspired, like whether it was reading comics, reading science fiction books, which a lot of people would look down on, um, or watching television. I was always inspired by good storytelling as a kid. And yeah, even absolutely. Now. I mean, and like you said, we're sort of reaching this golden age of television where there's, it's, it's not just in cinema anymore. Like you can just sit down and there's thousands of channels that you can access that all have great content. Yeah, and, 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 and we were just talking before the show started about Battlestar Galactica, which not that anybody necessarily knows what that is, but one component of that story is that uh, there are these um, human-like cyborgs uh, that have kind of evolved and, and programmed themselves, and they really are human-like. And there becomes a whole question of ethics throughout the whole series. Like, are they, 
you know, robots, or as they were, you know, it was either, it was even a derogatory term for them on the show, skin jobs, or <laughs> were they, you know, deserving of the same rights as humans? And, you know, kind of, again, a safe way to practice very difficult ethical questions is, is not, you know, particularly, particularly we're, we're moving into an age of genetic engineering, yeah. you know, and, and where do the rights of a genetically engineered entity end and where do they begin and, yeah. you know, at what point? This is a really interesting conversation. I had no idea we'd go down. But what do you think about uh, fiction creating our reality? You know, well, I don't know if it creates a reality or predicts a reality. Like you look mm -hmm. at science fiction from 100 years ago, predicted or 150 years ago, predicted space travel, mm -hmm. predicted things like telephones and computers and uh, robots. So, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know which came first, the, the prediction or the the seeds of reality like. But. I don't know, science fiction, you know, those are kind of futurist thinkers and they translated that, right now futurists write nonfiction books, but previously futurists wrote science fiction books. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's brilliant because I, you know, listening to your content and also noticing it, you know, as I was growing up, you know, stuff, you know, from Star Trek or whatever, you know, the phones with the Motorola flip, that that was the communicator yeah. in Star Trek, you know, like people turn that into a reality. Yeah, so yeah. you wonder, did Motor so Motorola made like that first flip phone, I think, and um, did they do that because, like as a joke, like, oh, they did it on Star Trek, <laughs> so we should do it for us? Or was there something pleasing about that form factor, that mm. design, that yeah. made it so appealing on Star Like all of us kids then were <laughs> pretending we had those flip phones. Yeah. It was very pleasing. Maybe it was the right design, and, and you know, and it only, that form factor only lasted a few years before no, today's smartphones, but... Yeah. You know, maybe it comes back at some point now that we can start folding phones, you know, right. related to Samsung. Yeah. Do you think that the current, you know, iPhones and uh, smartphones are like the tricorders? I mean, uh, it has everything in it. Yeah, yeah, of right? course. Yeah. So the fact that let's just look at what the Star Trek phone was. First off, it was a way to communicate. Right. Like Scotty beam me up. <laughs> Second off, um, you know, I don't know if it was the same device as the tricorder, but maybe it was, let's just assume it was for a second. Um, yeah. The fact that there were other apps on this right. device yeah. certainly <laughs> was like today's smartphone right. and um the the fact that it would um it would from a distance monitor your health metrics yes, exactly. but is that so much different you know that's kind of the next generation of like a fitbit which will right. monitor you know health maybe yeah. from a distance and i think you can actually attach things to the phones where it could take your blood you know for you know diabetics yeah. and stuff so yeah i mean and already medical devices like that exist right so like mobile stuff to, to take blood <sighs> and analyze right. it and then even stuff like the transporter which is clearly not anywhere in our near future has sparked debates in quantum mechanics uh you know if 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 teleportation can succeed and ideas from from quantum mechanics suggests that it can in some form or other hasn't someone successfully transported molecules from one end of a room to another I, I believe so yeah. yeah and i think um i forget like i there's always going to be with quantum mechanics there's always going to be missing information that's the, kind of the whole point is that you can't you can't know at the same time the position and the rotation or the speed of mm -hmm. a, a molecule you can't know two things these two things at the same time but the idea is if you observe a mol if you i don't know i can't explain it but uh <laughs> but yeah i think the idea is, is that when you observe something on one point it might change something 
very far away that that makes it seem like teleportation. Right. So although when I um, uh, had Michio Kaku, the quantum, he writes a lot of pop science quantum mechanics books, and he also teaches at, at Columbia University. When I had both him and William Shatner on the podcast at the same time, mm-hmm. we were discussing d- d- discussing the the quantum mechanics of teleportation, and he said t- the transporter was possible, but Upon further questioning, I said, would that be, if I use the transporter, would I actually be transported or would just a completely atom by atom imitation of me be transported, but I would actually be now dead? Right. And he said, unfortunately, yes, you would be dead, but there would be, no one would know because it would be exactly the same as you uh, on the surface. Yeah, it reminds me of, and since we're already talking about pop culture and television and movies and stuff, which, uh, like I said, I don't normally get to talk about, which is, this is great and totally unexpected, but do you remember that movie with Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale? Where, the Prestige. Ma- the Prestige was excellent. Right? I think- and the ending was that. And spoiler alert for anyone, I mean, you should have watched it by now. It's like 15 years old. Yeah, yeah. But No, it, The Prestige was beautiful and and... We're recording this podcast in a stand-up comedy club. The ideas behind The Prestige are very similar to the ideas when you're doing stand-up comedy. Mm. Like if you think about uh, the comedian Andy Kaufman, I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, him, or, or uh, you know, surprise and like what's real and what's not. And, and doing a surprise on top of a surprise mm-hmm. is often... Um, is often very much a part of comedy as it, the prestige, how they define the prestige in that movie is for magicians, but the exact same thing occurs in stand-up comedy. By the way, that term, the prestige, doesn't actually occur in magician circles. It was just for that movie, but uh, oh, okay. uh, but it was it was a very interesting concept. Yeah, so can you give me an example? And for those of you out there who already knows James, um, and I'm, I'm going to do a whole introduction, make sure everybody knows all your accolades and everything you've done, um, but you have recently jumped into the stand-up space and started, um, you know, flexing those muscles and getting better and better at it. I already see improvement over the course of, I think, six months, a year. It's amazing how, yeah, how you doing, evolved. I've been doing it for like it's three great. or four years now. It's great. But like, I feel and, like it's like a Moore's Law of comedy. Yeah. Like, and this is true for anything. If you improve, if you just want to improve 1% a day at everything, compounded, that means you're going to double in ability every 72 days, the rule of 72. Mm-hmm. So if something mm-hmm. compounds 1% a day, it, it, it doubles. Uh, like if your bank account compounds 1% a day, instead of if you start off $100 in 72 days, you'll have $200. So I always try for anything I'm interested in, and this applies not just to comedy, it can apply to investing, it can apply to entrepreneurship, it can apply to relationships, parenting, whatever. If you try to improve 1% a day at, at the things you love doing, you're going to double in ability uh, in every 72 days. Now, that's a real formula. And now, even though it's over, comedy is somewhat qualitative, you can put in the work every day to say, oh, or, or with investing, you can put in the work every day to say, oh, I probably did improve one, two, one and a half percent today. And so I feel like there's this Moore's law of, of comedy that I see for myself and, and in any area of life that I basically every two months, I think I'm um, 100% different than I was two months earlier. So so what are some of the things you do to, to improve? Like, do you go back, watch tapes? Yeah, I watch yourself? videos of myself. Mm-hmm. That Doing that right there and writing notes on that, that's a 1%. That's a 1%. Do you find that a difficult task? I find it difficult. I watch myself when I do presentations. It's tough, but yeah. I do it. Do you find it difficult? Yeah, it's very difficult. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not as difficult as going on the stage and actually doing it, but yeah. to watch yourself and hear your voice. You know, the, people yeah. have a natural 
uh, hatred towards the hearing their own voice. Yeah. Uh, or like, do I really look like that? Mm -hmm. Ugh. And um, but you notice things like, for instance, on the last video that that Jay sent me, I noticed, oh, that's odd. I never noticed that before. But I had like a tiny tiny like hunch forward while I was doing the comedy because mm -hmm. maybe I was a tiny bit nervous and it was in my body that way mm -hmm. so instead of me saying um and ah which maybe I used to do and I've corrected that now the nervousness is like going into my shoulders a little bit mm. what did you do to get rid of the ums and ah I, I do it all just the time. watching it on video and being aware of it awareness is the key to everything but how do you prevent yourself when you're talking from doing it to be it's better to be silent than to say um and ah okay. so people say um and ah particularly in comedy because they're afraid of pauses. Mm -hmm. And when people pause while you're doing comedy, you think they're not, when there's a silence, you think people don't like you and yeah. you're afraid to pause and you, you feel like you have to keep them constantly engaged. Like, right. But then you become a slave to the audience. And mm -hmm. so instead of becoming a slave, the body's natural reaction, this, this fear of not being accepted by the tribe, you try to bridge that with ums and ahs. And uh, right. so just being aware, like I'll still say ums and ahs, but then at least now I'm aware and I stop it. And so there's various things. I, I won't, talk in a normal tone you know which i think is boring to do on a stage like i could i so it's, be, it's better to always you know you so so you ask what i do to improve i'll watch videos of myself but i'll also watch videos of other comedians so every day i'll watch like probably an hour or more of comedy if i'm doing comedy that night i'll watch much more if i'm if I'm on just a regular day i'll just watch an hour um but let's say i watch dave Chappelle. And then a critical thing is to notice what he's doing that's unique. Is he just telling jokes? Is he just telling stories? But then try writing down what he's saying, and you can see how he's structuring a joke, and you can see he's, it seems like he's just riffing, but he clearly thought this out in mm. advance. Once you write it down, you see. But then also try imitating him, and you realize, oh, he's not talking. He's, he's doing a performance. Like, yeah. he's not just right. telling, like... Hey, you know what happened to me the other day? He's like, and you know what happened to me the other day? Mm -hmm. You know, there's like that extra thing, and it's not a normal voice, you, yeah. but you don't realize it until you're mimicking him. Right, it's choreographed, right? Yeah. It's very well methodical. It's, you know you remind me of? Uh, one of the best stand-up ever, you know, obviously Eddie Murphy and Delirious and that stuff, you know, I grew up with, but Chris Rock's Bring the Pain. Yeah. The way he paces back and forth, and when he's just punching his fist or everything, like you said, I, I I somewhat mimicked it. It was I watched it so many times. The beats and the way he moved and the well, way he where he was on stage when he was right telling the jokes. Well, that's very astute because so Tony Rock's been on my podcast, his brother, mm. and Tony Rock says, you know why Chris Rock walks around the stage like that? And he walks around like pretty a, fast, like, like a predator. Yeah, he, he walks around pretty fast. Um, he he does that for a very strategic reason. Mm. Is that if you close your eyes you won't know where he is. <laughs> so you have to kind of keep focused on him. Huh. It's another, it's, you always want, it's like writing. You want to give people as many reasons as possible to like what you write. So, so for instance, when I write a post, this is not, this applies more to like blogs than books. But when I write a post, I'll, you know, make it very story, like I'll make the story good, but I'll also try to make it humorous at points. But I'll also put in images that are good images that might have information in them mm. or, or be funny. So I give people a lot of reasons to go. And also, sometimes I'll do the so-called listicle. So it makes it easier for for people who don't really feel like reading. It makes it easier to just see the 10 things. Yeah. So all these ways to going into the article that might make a like. So with Chris Rock, it's again... You, you come up with many ways so that people have to pay attention to you. So just A, 
is he funny? That's one reason to pay attention. Is the story interesting? That's another reason to pay attention. Oh, he's moving really fast. Like I have to keep uh, paying attention to him so I just see where he is. And then he <laughs> talks in that weird way on stage, right? He's like, uh, you know what it is with dating? You know, he has that. Does he talk like that in real life? No, of course not. He's doing that because it's hard to hear unless you pay attention to every word. Mm. Like if you just are like casually paying attention, you will not understand a single word he says. Right, right. So, so, so Dave Chappelle has similar things. He'll stop. He'll smoke a cigarette. Mm. Sometimes he he very early on tra- trains the audience to laugh. Like he'll bat, he'll tell a joke. He'll start laughing. He'll kneel. He'll lean over. He'll he'll hit his knee with the microphone while he's laughing. Mm-hmm. That's this huge signal that the audience now needs to laugh. Mm. And you know, yeah, it's yeah. it's all carefully calculated. These guys are brilliant. Yeah. So, what is it that inspired you to take a stab and start doing it? Well, I I a I've been a fan all my life of mm-hmm. co- comedians. I mean, I, I used to work at HBO um, before I started my first business, and part of what I was doing at HBO was helping their comedy department, which they were the biggest um, purveyors of comedy on television. Yeah. And, and in part because they had a huge comedy department and they owned half of Comedy Central at the time. And yeah. um, uh, I just did um. But uh, I would go to the Aspen Comedy Festival. I would go to all the stand-up performances around town. This is like 1997. Everybody you know of as like this major mega movie star right now, they would be doing open mics, which are like amateur mics, you know, on stage around all around New York City back then. So Mm -hmm. like people like Amy Poehler or Mark Maron or David Cross, all these Bob Odenkirk, we just talked about Breaking Bad. Mm -hmm. They were they were like stand up comics back back in the day and and just beginning. Yeah. So it was fascinating to watch. I really wanted to do it, but I was terrified, terrified Mm -hmm. to go on stage. I was really afraid the audience was going to heckle me. And even when I was sitting in the crowd, I was always afraid the stand-up comedians were gonna make fun of me. So I was just afraid of it. And ultimately, I was so afraid I stopped going to live stand-up comedy for many years. And then, but I always wanted to do it. So Stephen Dubner, who wrote Freakonomics, he and I challenged each other. We're gonna do stand-up comedy on this day. It was three months in the future. And you know, we sold out the Bell House in Brooklyn and we did it and I'm like, Oh my God, that was the best six minutes of my life. It was your first time? Yeah. Wow. And and then I just got addicted and I couldn't stop doing it. And so I started doing it all around town and I've been doing, the most I've ever done in one week is maybe 10 times in one week, which is actually not a lot for a beginning stand-up, but because I study it so much and because I've had, you know, I've gotten really good at studying new things to learn. So whether it's like investing or entrepreneurship, I didn't have any traditional background. So I always was terrified. Oh, I don't have, I didn't go to business school. So how am I going to be an entrepreneur? You know, I'd always have these things and I, and, but I no excuses allowed. I'd always then figure out how do I skip the line? So I don't have to do the so-called 10,000 hours to become an expert at this. And so I kind of figured out for every effort, what's, what's, what are the things in common to learning how to be good at something worth doing? And with comedy, I started doing the same thing, so I can start skipping the line. And you know, like I said, there's this, there's almost this Moore's law to to it. I feel every every month or so, I'm like a hundred percent. I don't know if better is. I don't want to say that, but at least different. So I'm trying new new things, new styles. I'm learning new things. You know, if, if you ask me who my favorite comedians, every every week or two, it's someone different. Mm. Did you surround yourself with, you know, your favorite comedians or just funny people or people that you've deemed funnier than you? Yes. And 
all the time and yeah. you sort of started to get that muscle and confidence going. Yeah, and, and it was tricky because like I run a business, I write books, I write articles that have nothing to do with any of this stuff. I, I invest, um, yeah. I'm a professional investor and, and entrepreneur. So it was hard. Like It wasn't like I was going to say, well, I'm going to just drop everything and hang out in some seedy comedy club from, you know, sleep all day and then hang out from 9 p.m. to 2 in the morning every day. Like I had to kind of, and I still deal with this. How do I bring this aspect of my life in? I can't do it the way a real professional comedian would do it, but I'm still fascinated by it. But but now I've been trying to figure out how to integrate it back into my normal life. That's really more the key is that mm-hmm. don't just because you love tennis, for instance, you can get good, but you don't have to be in the hierarchy of professional tennis players to feel good about your improvement in tennis. Mm -hmm. So I feel like in a comedy club, I'm good, but now I can take those skills and they're amazing and they're amazingly difficult skills in comedy. I can take those skills and bring them back into my business life, whether it's public speaking or writing or even negotiating Mm -hmm. or selling or investing, or like we were just talking about the prestige, I can see a movie like that and say, oh, these elements of comedy, that's how they wrote this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of the surprise within the surprise. And, you know, with with selling, and it's so important. The, the, it's changed my sales or even public speaking. I would say my public speaking is probably, and again, these are hard to quantify, but I would say for myself, it's probably about 10 times better than it was because now I have this new skill set I can reach into. And it is a, a hard skill set. And I'll give an example. Like chess, when I was a kid, I, st- I was 17, I started playing chess. After about 15 months, I was one of the top young players in the country um, in terms of ranking. I was New Jersey's junior uh, champion. Uh, and that was like 15 months of playing. I was a master strength player uh, because I, I really learned how to get good at it. With comedy, despite all the experience I've had at learning how to learn difficult things, here I am, third or fourth year into it, it's much more difficult than chess. It's much more difficult than oh, wow. uh, investing was for me. It's like a real difficult set of skills. So what makes it so difficult? Well, because most people start off thinking, well, I got to be able to tell jokes and be funny. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're funny with your friends, it's different than being funny to a group of drunk Norwegian tourists. <laughs> so because you have to be funny in every situation or at least understand what to do in every situation. Not every, by the way, That's important to know, too. Not every situation you're going to make everyone laugh. It depends how the seating is. It depends who the audience is. It depends what day it is. It depends if it's raining outside. Mm-hmm. Depends who was up before you. It depends on the a quality of the yeah. So, so given each situation, there's maybe a hundred thousand different types of situations. You kind of have to know what to do for every situation, and that takes a lot of time. Time that I don't have, and that I'm not going to be able to put in. So I have to figure out all the shortcuts. But there's all these what I call micro skills. So there's humor. There's likability. Or what to do if you're not planning on being likable. Because some comedians are not likable, but they get their funny from that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's stage work. What, Like you mentioned with Chris Rock, what's his presence on the stage like and how does that help? Everything has to help move the story forward, yeah. just like in writing. Uh, so the, the, the stage work's critical. Everything, Every motion he does, there's a reason. Then there's crowd work. If I talk to someone in the crowd, how do you improvise and riff? You know, the weaker side will just say, hey, what do you do? Where are you from? That's how a lot of... But there's other things you can do that are much more interesting. Yeah. There's 
improvisation, if, if something happens where you're forced to improvise, you have to be able to improvise on the fly. You're, you're never going to have this audience again in this configuration. And if they're not laughing at what you're doing, you need to start improvising immediately. Right. Uh, and, and that's just a few. I could list probably 30 skills that are equally difficult and mutually exclusive of each other. So your ability to do crowd work has nothing to do with your ability to sit at home and write a joke, has nothing to do with your stage presence, has nothing to do with uh, your your different kinds of crowd work, has nothing to do with your likability. These are all different skills. When, yeah, I mean, that's perfectly put. So now I totally understand what you're saying there. Um, I, I'm curious when you do presentations, like business conferences and you're on stage. Does it ever morph? Like, do you feel like, okay, I have a mic in my hand. I'm going to tell a couple jokes here. Like, yeah. does your mind just shift into comedy? Well, it's not shift as much as I, I combine the two skill sets. So public mm -hmm. speaking has one, is, is a, a set of skill sets that's very hard. So I've been public speaking for 20 years. I've done a lot, hundreds of talks. Uh, but for the two to four years, or for the past two to four years, I've made a conscious effort to say no to. Every, I went to. I did one public talk uh, in for Adobe in California because it was helping out a friend of mine. But I said no to basically every public talk because I wanted to focus on stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. There's only so much time to do all these things. But more recently, I've decided. You know what? I'm not that interested in just being really good. Like I said, for a, a, a room full of a, you know a half-empty room full of like drunk tourists on a Saturday night. I want to bring these skills back into doing what I do best, which is, you know, talking to people who came to see me to hear this, what particular message or ideas I have to share. But now I'm able to bring back that, that stand-up comedy skill set. And so, yeah, I, I've, instead of just telling stories that are funny, I might tell stories that have the stand-up comedy extra flair on mm -hmm. top of it. It's not just funny. It's, again, the stage presence, the crowd work, the... The understanding, what is the crowd thinking? You have a much deeper understanding of what every person in the crowd is up to mm. and how you can surprise them and how wow. you can do something that's a little bit... So I've always been a little bit shocking with my writing. I think that's why people like to read it or, or with my public speaking. But with comedy, it's like 10 times that you have to kind of shock and awe. And bringing that back into public speaking in a very visceral way, I, I did something... Um, two or three weeks ago where I was speaking and emceeing at kind of a very private sort of TED type of conference. Mm. And it's about 200 people in the audience. And again, using the comedy skills plus my, now I'm able to bring in my life experiences in ways that I can't with stand-up comedy. I'm able to combine the two now in mm. front of an audience that knows me. Yeah. It was so much better and more interesting. So that's the kind of thing I want to do more of now. Have you noticed that you're getting more offers, like more demand to do conferences because of the, you know, you, you leveled up? No, yeah. no, actually. No. You know why? Because I said no to like mm. 30 in a row. Okay. And I think just the word got out that <laughs> he, let's not, I think people just forgot. Like, because what would happen is people would see you at a conference and, and they would like what they see and they'd say, hey, I'm doing a conference. Because people who, who organize conferences, they go to other conferences. So conference organizers tra mm -hmm. travel from conference to conference. Mm -hmm. And so people will see you and, they, and they're like, oh, can you speak at my conference also? So the more speaking you do, the more you get asked to do it. Okay. The less speaking you do, the less you get asked gotcha, to do gotcha. it. Gotcha, gotcha. You said one thing, though, when you're on stage, I guess in a comedy setting or in a or, uh, business conference or something, you're... 
you're hyper aware of the audience. Like, so you've gotten better at reading the audience. How, how does that work? That became like a new superpower. Like you added that yeah. on. Yeah. Can that was a huge that feeling. What is that like? And I noticed that even in the first couple of months I was doing stand up, I had to do one talk at a very informal event, but it was still, still a talk. And I think it was around 15 minutes. And right away I noticed, oh, I'm feeling the audience completely differently than I used to. Like this group, this table here, they're doing something with their phones. This mm -hmm. group here is laughing and listening to me. This group here is listening, but they're not laughing. So you start to figure out who you should focus on depending on what your goal is for different parts of the talk. And then I started playing around with crowdsourcing the talk. Mm. So um, I would list subjects and let the audience yeah. pick through clapping mm -hmm. that what subject I would talk about. And I would just try this out a couple of times. I didn't, I didn't do this the last time I spoke, but that became interesting because then they chose the topic. They don't know I've prepared everything. Yeah. They th feel they've pick, selected. Yeah. So they have a cognitive bias to like what I'm saying more right. and to right. laugh even more. They don't know that I've overprepared for the talk. They don't know that I have like three talks of material ready and I could talk about anything. Or, um, you know, so there was lots of like tricks that are maybe also even unique to my current stand-up act that I was doing even like three or four years ago that were just different. Everything was, everything was different. And then also sometimes... If somebody's paying attention to the audience, sometimes that's the person you focus on. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the person who's not paying attention to you, to you, you, you have to focus on because maybe they're being disturbing. You know, one important thing you learn in stand-up comedy, but you don't really learn in public speaking, is you have to call, you have to address what is happening in the room. Mm -hmm. So if there's noise next door, let's say in the conference room next door, you have to address that. It's very important. Mm -hmm. If there's unusual things in the room, you have to address that because mm -hmm. then people know that they're in this with you gotcha. and this is not just a prepared, like a PowerPoint that you go on robotic remote control to give this PowerPoint and then you leave. Like they need to know, you need to build the tribe and you build the tribe by like, hey, here we all are. There's, mm. you know, why are the pipes exposed in this room? Why are there drawings of the Empire State Building in this yeah. room? You know, what, what, who drew, drew that? What were they thinking? Is some psychotic person who looks like a bomb explosion and we're over there in that corner of the room? Uh, so, so you have, you have to, I don't know, there's just so many things. Yeah. By the way, not only public speaking, when I go on TV, mm -hmm. when you go on TV, what typically happens, particularly a news show, is, there's one or two anchors and there might be one to three or zero to three other panelists, mm -hmm. you know, so there might be five, six, seven people on the frame with you. Okay. And you know, you have, that's your audience and you're the comedian. doesn't mean you tell jokes, mm -hmm. but you still have to control the audience. Yeah. Either you control the audience or they control you. And by the audience, I mean the anchors and the other panelists. Now the anchors are professionals at doing it, but I notice with, again, with this new skill set. I could, I could control the frame because they're not expecting me to, right. and and that's a good skill. So, what's what's another skill set that you're thinking of exercising? What's the next one? Like, you know, in the altature. Well, I always I always like to experiment with writing. I've been writing every day since almost every day since 1990. Yeah, this is a long time. Yeah, it's almost 30 years. Yeah, and. Like like all good things, it's because of women that I started writing. There was this 
girl in 1989 or whatever that I had a crush on and she liked a friend of mine who kept carrying around a notebook and looked all hip and cool and he said he was going to write the great American novel. I don't know if, I don't think he ever actually wrote anything, but I was thinking, oh, okay, that's how you get girls to, to maybe pay attention to you or notice who you are because I wasn't having any luck with, with chess. Maybe this will work a little better. So I started uh, writing and again, doing the same approach, like reading every day, studying every day, writing every day, getting feedback. And it took me a long time to write stuff that was semi good, but um, I'm always, and the, and the problem now I have is I've written something, I've written things that people like. And so there's a danger when people, people always think, oh, I don't want people to hate my writing. Just as dangerous, not in a bad way, I don't want people, but just, I was about to say, just as dangerous is people liking your writing. And that's not to say I don't like that. Like I want people, I write because I want people to like my writing. The problem is not with them. The problem is with me. You can, it's easy for the writer or the entrepreneur or whatever. It's easy for the writer to want to feed that beast, to turn the, the, the likers, yeah. not the haters, but the likers into a beast that you have to feed. Yeah. But the beast is a beast. It's going to go away or it's going to eat you up mm -hmm. eventually. You have to constantly keep reinventing yourself, even as a writer. And I think, I think too many writers, they start to slip when they, they're like, oh gosh, the people really like this. I need to now figure out what did I do? And I just keep repeating that. Mm. When actually you get better, you only get better as an artist by changing and, and growing huh. and, 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 and so on. Yeah, it's interesting. You're, you're, you're talking about um, you know feeding the beast and like sort of giving them more of what they want or what you think they want, right? But then you fall into a trap. It's funny, you know, everything always goes back to Seinfeld at some point for me. Um, were you a big Seinfeld fan? Yeah, yeah, of course. Do you think they were guilty of that? Like, it was so good, and then by the third season, you know, first season, they're all feeling their characters out. Um, you know, George was basically doing a Woody um, Allen impression. But then, like, by the third, fourth season, it was hot, right? It was at the peak, maybe fifth season, that whole masturbation episode. And then it sort of, they became caricatures of themselves. Like, I don't know, did the writing team change or did they get lazy or did they want to give the, feed the beast and give them exact more of so, what they so, wanted? So, so because Seinfeld is considered the greatest sitcom in television yeah. history, whether it is or not, you know, now with many new sitcoms, it's, it's, it's hard to judge. But I've seriously studied the show. Like yeah. I would study anything that's, that's great. Like my, my own podcast is about peak performance. I really want to study how greatness is achieved. Yeah. So, uh, so I say yes and no. I'll comment on a couple of things you said. First off, George was not doing a Woody Allen impression. He was doing a Larry David impression. Ah. So George was the Larry David character, and Larry yeah. David were, of course, Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld were the initial creators. But Larry David was really yeah. kind of the right. the ultimate writer. So was Jerry Seinfeld. But mm -hmm. Larry David maybe had a little bit more mm -hmm. influence. Seinfeld was. Larry David contributed the darkness that kind of made Seinfeld yeah, so special. Enthusiasm. Right, because Curb Your Enthusiasm <laughs> is sort of a Seinfeld without Jerry Seinfeld, so it becomes much more dark, oh, but yeah. just as funny. Yeah. And, you know, Larry David was a comedian. He also wrote for sketch shows like Fridays back in the you know yeah, early yeah, 80s. Yeah. Right. That's where he met Michael Richards, also on Fridays. But anyway, so George was doing a Larry David impression. That was He was the Larry David character. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting you say Woody Allen because Larry David, of course, was the Woody Allen stand-in on a Woody Allen movie much later. Oh. Um, you know, Woody Allen was always played himself in his yeah. first bunch of movies, but then he got too old. Yeah. So he's had people ranging from Jesse Eisenberg to Woody okay. Allen gotcha. playing the Woody Allen stand-in. Yeah, so yeah. there is that connection. Mm. They're similar, but yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. quite. The other thing is 
Larry David came in there with all these crazy New York City stories and plus his all old comedy routines and, and so on. But at some point he started to feel, I'm gonna run out of stories. Yeah. So every year he hired a new set of writers from oh. who are basically comedian, stand-up comedians from New York City. He'd bring them out mm. to LA. They would write down all of their stories. He would pick which ones would be uh. episodes. And he was very strict about it, like you know. And then he would rewrite everything. And then a year later, he would fire them all and bring in a new uh, set of uh, uh, writers. Okay. And so that's how he kept it fresh. But so on the one hand, yes, he kept it he, he kept it fresh, so it wasn't just recycling those stories. But the problem is that you point out is that the writing staff did, did change. Larry David himself left the show mm. about halfway through the series. Okay. And yeah, so, yeah. so I don't know if that made it. I'm not saying that made it better or worse. It was still a great show. And, and in fact, the most criticized Seinfeld show was the finale, the yeah. series finale, which he came back to write. Mm. So who knows? But, um, of course, he went on to Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is which is uh, one of, also one of the greatest sitcoms <laughs> in history. Absolutely. Just the theme song pops in my head. You know, it's just so catchy. You know, you can't... Now that I put it in your head, it's going to be in your head all day. That, yeah. Uh, and, and I heard them dissect that. I forgot the exact reasons why, like where that that clown music came from sort of do you uh, remember where that yeah. originated yeah he um <laughs> it's an i think jeff story. garland talked about it in his book uh yeah. uh when he came on the podcast uh it's like he heard it on, oh yeah he heard it on some commercial like some just weird dumb commercial <laughs> and he's like find that find that tune and he bought that tune and and put it on the, on oh, the show wow. yeah <laughs> So, yeah, I, I had a list of questions for you, James, and I'm like, yeah, this is like totally off script, which is great because... But but, but it's good because... It, I love the, it. The way to get good at yeah. anything is to just study anything you love, yeah. and that'll help yeah. you get good at other things. So studying Seinfeld is a good way to... Like, Larry David and was was an, and Jerry Seinfeld, too, but, but let's just focus on Larry David for a second. He was, and he still is, he's an excellent leader. And you don't think you watch Career Enthusiasm and like, are you mm -hmm. kidding me? Mm -hmm. That's he's just playing a character on he's he's playing the Larry David he wishes he could be. <laughs> that's not really him. So why do I say he's an excellent leader? Well, think about the four main characters. This is the first time this happened ever in a sitcom. With each in in each show, all four characters have a three act story that uh, intermingles and interweaves with each other yeah. at the in the conclusion. Mm -hmm. That never happened before in a sitcom. And mm -hmm. so you think, okay, he did that for creative reasons. That's genius. But no, he actually did that for management reasons. He didn't want any, you know, he didn't want any of the actors or actresses. He didn't want them bored sitting on the sidelines. One of his main actors for an episode or two. So he always made sure each one was equally included with each episode, huh. so they would feel just creatively fulfilled and, and keep on performing at their highest performance. And that was genius. You know, yeah. that's what you want to do as a leader. And and you know the way I described how the writing happened. Um, you could say, oh, it's bad that he fired every people every season. Well, no, because all those people went on to, you know, show run excellent shows later because they had this Seinfeld experience. Yeah, yeah. So he he was just, he, he had, that's why he had to quit after five years. It was, he was such a great leader and he put so much effort into it. Mm. He, he, he just, you know, he got tired. Yeah, he's brilliant. How did, um, in the linear sort of timeline, your interest in being a comedian and, and being stand-up and doing stand-up, versus now being a partner in a stand-up <laughs> nightclub. Like, what? how did that fuse together? How did that all happen for you? Um, did you, you know, manifest it or did you make it all? Yeah, well, well, I wanted, I was, 
performing at a variety of places. This was one of them. And I had some ideas for this place, and I really liked Donnie Zolden, who, who was the, um, the main owner at the time. And, uh, and he's, you know, he and I are equal now here, but uh, he wanted, you know, we were always talking ideas, and, and I said, look, how about I become a partner? And it's just a little bit at a time over the years. I became okay. more and more of a partner until now we're, we're co-owners of this place. And, and, you know, part of that is business. I figured, okay, maybe this is one way to combine my business expertise with my interest in comedy. Yeah. But, you know, a comedy club's not really a great investment as far as the other types of investing I do. Mm. I mean, it's actually, if if you're interested in the other types of investing I do, then definitely do not <laughs> invest in a comedy club. That's the worst type of investment you can do. And, uh, but it was, it was fun. And it was also a way I always try to figure out how can I skip the line? Not in terms of, you know, I never use my status to say, well, I'm forcing myself to go on stage today. And they're like, you can't, you can't tough i'm going up they i never do that like if I, I if i feel like i'm not good or bad i won't go up uh and if they and they'll tell me too if you know what's going on like you can't you shouldn't go up on a saturday night this week you know they'll tell they definitely have not had any problems telling me not to go up and so but i skipped the line in the sense that it gives me exposure to a lot of comedians who then you know in among my 500 podcasts maybe 20 or 30 of them have been among my favorite comedians so not not you know like yeah. three to five percent but still significant enough that imagine you want to get good at tennis and you get to interview the top 20 tennis players in the world and they get to show you things about you know that they wouldn't show anybody else that's that's great let's do it improve your tennis and then not only that i probably do get up a little bit more than i would have as a someone only doing it four years four years is considered a baby in the comedy world 20 yeah. years some of these guys are doing it and they're still working on their success and so on. So I've skipped the line a little bit that way, but I attribute it, let's say, somewhat to my increase in ability and now somewhat to, you know, it does help a little to, to be so involved in the, in the scene. You know, it's a little easier. But I get up at other comedy clubs too where, where they're, they're certainly not putting up because I putting me up because I own another comedy club. If anything, that prevents me from going up at other clubs. So. <laughs> it's brilliant, though, to be able to invest in something that you can actually enjoy and use and sort of, you know, like you said, fuse it with your other interests and stuff that you're yeah. passionate about. And, you know, because I've been involved in, I've analyzed or been involved in no less than a thousand businesses, uh, I'm able to kind of look at different things and say, well, why don't we try this business model? Or this is the time to give up on this attempt let's pivot to this attempt because I've just seen so many business models and I, I haven't, yeah. I haven't been actively involved with a thousand businesses, but I've looked and studied and mm -hmm. broken down well over a thousand businesses as an investor, as an entrepreneur, as a venture capitalist, as a hedge fund manager, as a writer, I've been exposed to so many business models. Yeah. I could just go, I, I could do 27 podcasts in a row about <laughs> just business models. You know, it's brilliant. You just it made me realize because I, you know, I had Donnie on the podcast and he talked about, you know, he, I was like, if there's anything you could have done different or anything you could have adjusted. He, he said, he said, I would never have brought in James Alvarez. <laughs> that guy the exact has opposite. fucked up my shit so much. Well, your you weren't mentioned by name, but he did talk about how he was like, I was sort of asleep the first 10 years. I guess, how long was it until you came? Nine because, years. Yeah. So he said about 10 years I was asleep and he goes, I didn't do a whole lot with what I could have done. And now I really now I see the direct correlation with you coming in and now with Laugh Pass and Laugh and and and, and Tight Five and Podcast right, so Row. There's all these businesses that are ancillary right to this, which normally you wouldn't expect to come with 
a right. Club. Right. A comedy club is first and foremost a bar. Yeah. You know, that's where your Two profits are minimum. on yeah, exactly. alcohol. Yep. And then it's a comedy club. There's a there's a stage and an audience and, and so on. Uh, because you could use that space to extend your bar or you can use that to have shows. And so a comedy club is this bar plus a showroom. Yeah. And then, but you wouldn't think, oh, you know, other other things have the, an odd internet component. Like a laugh pass is sort of half a real world thing, half an internet thing. Yeah. You know, you know, they have a, we have an ad agency that takes comedians mm -hmm. and tries to, uh, Use it, use it to make brand advertising funnier. Mm -hmm. Well, I had an ad agency in the 90s and yeah. things like that. I'm able to either help their initial efforts or really give them like a thousand top ideas on top of what they're trying to do and how they can build more customers and, and kind of analyze, let's say, all the types of business models that can result, but which ones historically have get the highest valuations more quickly? Yeah. Because you just, I have, again, like I have a catalog of this stuff since the 90s. Right. And, and I see how things evolve much more quickly. Like, you know, is it better to be a web agency or is it better to kind of take what you do over and over again for clients and make that a product and now you're a product company? Well, you make the same revenues either way, but when you sell the company, the product company is worth ten times what an agency would be would be, even if you have the same revenues. So yeah. it's just knowing things like like that, right? And then, and then that suggests a strategy. Well, how do we productize this? Okay, well here's the five ways you could, here's what we should productize, and here's the five ways you should productize it, and here are the potential buyers of that type, and here's how you change your sales to sell a product instead of a service, even though it's the same clients and the same right. ultimate result, yeah. and so on. So it's a lot of it, a lot of businesses messaging and perception and and sales. Yeah. You know, if you just have a good product, you're kind of sunk as a business. So how, how often do you guys meet and, and talk about new business strategies and creating new products? I mean, we see each other almost every day or so. But maybe, So you don't have formal meetings? And we maybe just, meet like every month, something like that. Yeah. But we, again, we, I saw him yesterday. I, saw, I see him all the time. Because I, mean, so, I know that, you know, because you're very creative, you know, you're analytical, you're both sides. And like, how do you filter all these ideas and know which ones, okay, this one seems like something we need to implement? Well, A, you don't really know in advance which ideas are good or bad. So it's just like people, you know, you, you uh, what's the thing? You hire slowly and fire fast. Yeah. But I do uh, hire fast and, and, uh, and fire fast. <laughs> so do everything, <laughs> doing everything fast. So you have a business idea. Okay, here's, here's the easiest way we could try it. Let's do it tomorrow. Did it work? No. Let's move on to the next one. Yeah. And, and, but the other thing is you just have experience knowing, at, you know, I see all the time people who have a good idea, but their first sets of ideas, people say, oh, ideas are a dime a dozen, executions, everything. That is so incorrect, that statement. A, ideas are not a dime a dozen. A good idea is hard. Second, execution, there's easy ways to execute and there are hard ways to execute. If you, you have to have good execution ideas to execute in a smart mm. way. Uh, you know, I have, uh, can I tell you an example? Yeah. So I have one friend who came up with a great business idea. I love the idea. And I won't describe specifically what the idea is, but she wanted to raise $100,000, then hire a software company, you know, to work on it. And it would take about six months to make the, pro the product. And then she would find customers who were interested. And I'm like, wait a second. Why don't you just call up a friend of yours who's in the situation? You know, every business starts off, someone's in a struggle and you have a product that solves the struggle. Yeah. So, just like a story. <laughs> and 
I said, why don't you just call up someone who is in the struggle? And she's like, oh, I know 10 people like that. And I said, okay, why don't you manually do what you're suggesting your software would do? Because you'll do it probably as fast as the software or as fast as the customer cares about anyway. And then you see, you'll see right away. Did they feel like this was worth paying for? Did they really want it? Did they use, how did they use it? What extra things did they ask for that you wouldn't have expected? Hmm. Why raise 100000 spend six months building software, and then, oh, there's these 20 new features that you didn't even think of mm. that, uh, and by the way, it'll, it's hard to raise money. Now I just gave her an entire way to execute on this entire idea to determine if she has a valid business or not. Yeah. And then, by the way, once she executes on the service, on actually manually doing this, let's say for 10 people, now she has testimonials, mm. maybe even kind of authority status if she works with you know other companies to help distribute her service or whatever. Now it'll be trivial for her to raise money. She has revenues, profits. Um, it has to be profitable because she hasn't raised money. And she knows exactly what feature set she needs because she got feedback from a dozen people. So, yeah. or maybe even more. Really? So, so yeah. that's, yeah, execution's everything. But she could have really screwed herself if she executed that way as opposed <laughs> to my way. Gotcha. So the idea was there, but yeah, right. It, 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 this is, there's ways to be more efficient. Right in the way you're executing it, right, and 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 execution depends on execution ideas. Mm. You have to have the idea, the best ideas on how to execute. Now, how do you have those ideas? Well, again, through 30 years of trial and error, right. starting businesses, that's how. I mean, the very first business I started was 1987, mm. and it's a lot of the first three <laughs> businesses I started. I told myself never again. I hate this. I I hate being rejected, I hate losing. I, um, I'll rise up at a company and, and write on the side the great American novel, and that's how I'll structure my life. And it just didn't work out that way. Mm. But uh, you get a lot of experience. Because then by the time of the third or the fourth time, I had already failed at like three or four businesses when by my mid-20s, and finally I'm like, okay, this is what I did wrong. This is what I did right. This is how I executed wrong. And by the way, I was still horrible at it. Maybe I'm still horrible at it. I don't know. I really am learning every day about business. I know yeah. some people who are like a, a hundred times better than me at business, and I'm learning from them every single day. Mm. How, how often do you keep them? Like, do you communicate with them every day? Every day. Yeah. Yeah. I talk with you... I talk with my the people better than me every day mm -hmm. because a I want to keep track of what they're investing in so I make sure don't forget to include me in the deal <laughs> like and then I also because we're already invested in so many deals and they're so much better at business by the way when I say so much better maybe 80% they're better than me at and 20% I'm better than them at so I'm able to mm. always make sure I offer them something right. and that's why they want to talk to me gotcha. otherwise they're just like ugh stop calling me so I always have to make sure I'm good enough I have something unique to offer mm. but in general they're 80 80% of business in some senses they're better than me at. But so I'm always keeping track calling them to keep track of hey what's going on with this company? What's going on with this company? And then I'm able to offer some ideas. That's ostensibly the reason I'm calling them. Mm -hmm. But I really just want information, hey, how how am I doing today? And then I talk with partners who are more on the same level as me mm -hmm. and we strategize, okay, where do we need to be shifting focus? shifting awareness, where to shifting resources, whether it's time or money or energy or connections, who do we need to be helping today? So that's 
I talk with my partners who are at my level. And then I write every day about my experiences, you know, and I go on podcasts. And so people who maybe don't have the same level of experience or have a different kind of experience, they get to both be entertained and benefit from my experience. And when I say be entertained, it's because I've sucked so much. I find that that's entertaining to people. <laughs> that's definitely, I think, one of your superpowers is being so vulnerable and authentic and people just gravitate towards that. And I know I did, you know, reading your books and your blogs and I'm like, man, this is different. This is a much, this voice is different because a lot of people don't want to put that out there for fear of, you know, you know, discrediting themselves or whatever. And you just just put it all out there, which is which is great. Yeah, and, and again, because, well, and again, it, it, that was sort of a style I played with a little bit when I was writing a column for the Financial Times. I started writing for the Financial Times in 2004 till, till 2010. But then it was really a style that, a voice that picked up for me um, in a big way in mid-2010, and that became the beast that I started to feed. So mm -hmm. I always have to be careful not staying only in that lane. That That's my challenge as a, as a writer. But... People, again, they were entertained because they, they would read, particularly then, now so-called failure porn, I feel, is a lot more common in the business self-help world and in the blogging world. And I call it failure porn because I feel it's sort of my style, but not quite. It's like a bad, I don't want to criticize, so but it's just not quite the way I would do things. It's not like I'm proud of my failures. Uh, I don't wear them as badges of honor. But I think people want to know that, oh, okay, Everyone says, oh, you know, the seven habits of being great. Well, I don't know. I want to avoid also the seven mistakes that you can com commonly make, like, in, yeah, yeah. or the hundred mistakes you can commonly make. I've made thousands of mistakes. I remember, um, I, I remember one time, because it's also, like, I tend to, I'm the type of person, I tend to believe most things that I hear. So you really have to learn through, through lots of experience, skepticism, and how to be skeptical. And, but even after 25 years, or tw I remember in 2012, this guy went from all the way from like nor one end of Long Island, all the way to Manhattan, then took a train all the way up to Cold Spring, New York, 60 miles away, where I lived at the time. He knew exactly when I was going to go to breakfast and what place I went to breakfast at because that's, I had written about it. And so he comes running up from the train station, he's all red and sweating. And he's like, James Aldridge, I have to pitch you something and I said um all right pitch me and he's like no no no, I can't I gotta go back now I gotta run around and take the train back but can we meet like during the week in the city and I was just so taken with how the effort he had put in I figured oh this must be good is he had used kind of this cognitive bias on me and so I said sure in his pitch he pitched this amazing technology he was like a PhD in chemistry he pitched this amazing technology but then he was pitching more and more things. And I swear to God, on the last page, he was pitching me that he was going to make a time machine. <laughs> and I invested. What? <laughs> and this is 2012. It's not that long ago. Wow. And this is after, by the way, I had been a serious... I have, I have said no to thousands of investment opportunities. <laughs> and somehow I said that, that were much more realistic than this. They have and diagrams? Somehow, and did, yeah, did he, yeah, everything. It totally made sense. Totally made sense. And uh, I wasn't drinking, you know, I was in an office and, and so I invested and huge mistake, but it wasn't a huge mistake for the reasons you think. It was a huge mistake because he was insane. Yeah. And once you start, and I don't want to say, I don't say it in a 
bad way. It's right. like he just not the sort of person I wanted to deal with every single day. And mm -hmm. often you invest in somebody and if they need help, you have to deal with them every single day. Right. Uh, and, but I did end up selling, I said, I got to get out of this business. <laughs> so I ended up selling his business. Okay. And uh, it turned out to work out really well for me, but not the time machine part. There were yeah. other aspects, right. you know, that were that he did have some technology that was, that was very good. And I sold the business for good reasons. You know, the, the and the buyers, I still, in touch with and we worked together on a lot of deals but we all know that was insane at the time <laughs> it's just the buyers wanted me and more involved with their company right and i said this is a way to do it and by the way here's a story we could tell about this business in your messaging to clients and okay you know anyway but this is all like complicated things like what do you do with uh, that was a, definitely a major failure on my part but it also showed that I had all this enormous experience and success from investing, but still was able to fall into some very, very basic traps. Yeah. And then, but then also how you get out of those traps, you don't have to just give up. You don't have to fix them. You can have other, there's many alternatives when you're in a bad situation. You know, there's so many things that I'd unpack, and, but I know we're running out of time here. Are we good, Jay? Um, so like when you, how often do you just rely on your gut when it comes to situations like that? When you want to invest in something or someone, like, do you just do the whole exercise, like a best case scenario, worst case scenario, most likely case scenario? Uh, that's so, so I will say that's two questions. So I'll answer the first one first. How often do I rely on my gut? Never. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is because of situations like what I just described. Yeah. I always, I've had this rule since 2007, which is that I will invest only if it's basically the first round, so I'm not investing at a high valuation, which by the way, that's not always a good strategy. Mm -hmm. Peter Thiel, the billionaire, he has the exact opposite strategy. He invests if something's at the billion dollar round because he by then he knows the company's gotten over the hump with their business model. Mm -hmm. they, they have figured out their messaging and perception so that other people think it's worth a billion dollars. And if, some, mm -hmm. if, if investors are investing at a billion dollar valuation, they have a plan in place to take this higher. Yeah. So uh, the only time I I didn't I haven't done that rule lately was I invested in Slack at a billion dollar valuation. But um, so the first rule is I'll get in the first round. Second rule is only invest if there's other investors investing side by side with me. Mm -hmm. So so I'm not investing against them. They have to be side by side, mm -hmm. and they have to be smarter than me. Mm -hmm. So I know that. I know that my gut is not so good. Look, I just invested in a time machine. <laughs> so my gut is not so good. And it's better for me to invest with people smarter and let them do all the hard due diligence. They've got 50 PhDs running around doing due diligence. They'll do all the background checks. Mm -hmm. They'll drill down. They'll talk to the kid's kindergarten teacher, You know, the, the CEO's kindergarten teachers. They'll do all the hard work. And they have more connections than me. So... You know, you always want to make sure you can get out of a business by having it get sold so they can know they can get it sold. So, for instance, I invested in 2007 in a company, Buddy Media. The CEO was smarter than me. That's the whole that story of that company is a podcast in and of itself. But mm -hmm. suffice to say, the CEO had demonstrated to me a year earlier that he was much more intelligent to me than me. He had already started and sold another business. People don't realize that selling a business is just as hard as starting it. Mm -hmm. I know plenty of CEOs who've got great businesses, but they do not know how to sell their businesses. Mm -hmm. That's a very important skill to know how to create value out of what you create monetary value out of this asset that you've created. Mm -hmm. Very hard skill. 
So I knew he knew how to do that skill. And then, by the way, Peter Thiel was investing in that round side by side with me at like a two and a half million dollar valuation. It's Peter Thiel, Mark Pincus, who started Zynga. Uh, Peter Thiel was the first investor in Facebook. This company, Buddy Media, was a, a, like a CRM company for companies that wanted to get on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So I figured, oh, let's have the first investor in Facebook be an investor yeah. alongside, side by side, same rules as me. And um, that's, that's basically it, that's my rules. So, yeah. and if even, if even just a smart, like if Warren Buffett's investing in a company and he says, James, I'm, I'm, I'm not even gonna tell you what the company is, will you invest alongside me? I'm gonna say yes, because what am I gonna do? I'm gonna be like, Warren, how could you have, how could you have invested in this? I'm so much smarter than you, like what are you doing? And no, I'm just gonna write a check. But that's, okay, that's the other rule. No more than one to 2% of my net worth in any one deal. That's a critical rule. People don't realize it's a very important aspect of investing. You, the less money you invest, the more money you make. I'm not gonna explain why that is true, mm -hmm. but if you if, think about it, listeners should think about it, it is always true. The less money you invest, the more money you make. And, uh, and I'm not talking about diversification, although that's part of it. It, the, the more money you will make on that deal, one deal, and uh, yeah, so that so now that that takes the gut out of it. Yeah. Oh, Warren Buffett's in there. It's the first round. Uh, CEO sold a company before. Boom. Here's the check. Okay. One percent of my uh, portfolio. Done. I don't have to do any work. Hmm. It's just what you, you need the money in an hour. Okay. I, I, and then, by the way, I don't even do. I have a business partner. Wire the money. And then he his rule is. He, he asked me, did you, did you do your rules? And I said, yes. And he says, okay, I'm in also. And he wires the money. So Awesome. Awesome. And, and, but, but then there was a second part of your question, yeah. which was... Um, the best case, worst case, most likely. Yeah. So every single day I have a spreadsheet and I have, let's say, 30 angel investments on there. Mm -hmm. And every single day, based on what news is happening that day or week, I adjust best case, worst case, probable case of the uh -huh. outcomes because that helps me plan my life. Mm. And I, like, okay, well, worst case is this company IPOs in 2023, and here's what's probably, it's probably gonna be worth. So make sure when I'm thinking about what 1% of my portfolio is, I'm working off the worst case scenario conservatively, but okay, but does that mean I have enough cash while I'm waiting for an IPO in 2023, worst case? And so, mm. so, so I have to do that analysis every day. Do you have separate spreadsheets for your current portfolio and then one for your potentials? And how does no, that all work? Just no, it's current. All, yeah, okay. just current. Okay. Because okay. even potentials have an expected value. Mm -hmm. So I have on my spreadsheet an investment that will probably occur two months from now. And it's, it's the probable outcome is less than once I invest, but there's still a probable outcome. It's just maybe there's a 50-50 chance I invest, so it's half of what. Mm -hmm. How often do you get pitched to? Uh, not a lot anymore. Mm -hmm. I used to get pitched a lot more, mm -hmm. but now I avoid, I avoid pitches because I find the smart people that I like piggybacking yeah. and I just stick to them. If I was more aggressively, if I was, you don't need how much, you know, I enjoy doing stand up comedy. I'm not really a full, I'm not a 24 hour a day and I enjoy writing and I enjoy doing podcasts. So I'm not doing, if I was doing investing 24 hours a day, I would be more active about yeah. getting pitched, working with smart people. I have the enough smart people around me that I'm gonna get one good deal a year, and I've been doing this since 2007. So again, I'm in 30 different deals now. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to go in any new deals. I'm going in a new deal in the next two months, like I mentioned. But 
that that's just a surprise. Like I, I didn't have to go into any new deal. I didn't necessarily want to go into any new deals this year. Mm. Well, okay. Yeah, I got one more question for you, and a selfish question, um, because um, this is what I'm sort of modeling and trying to figure out. Um, what do you recommend for businesses that are already from day one, knowing that they um, are positioning themselves to sell? You know, it's not going to be some legacy thing passing on to next generation. It's actually, you know, what do you recommend the early stages of that type of business to start making those decisions that lead you down that path? So what? Why was it? Why is this your selfish? Your one selfish question? Because that's my company. So you're thinking of selling, or you're thinking you would like to sell? Yeah, I'd like it. I'd like for it to be at a certain value in my mind. You know, at a certain a period of time, you know, worth this much with the option to sell it. So, so first off. I hate when people say, "Oh, this is my baby. I'm I'm never selling this. I love this. Like if I sold this, what would I do? I would just do the same thing." <laughs> Look, buddy, you're not Mark Zuckerberg. Just every as every single business I've ever started was for sale one minute after I started it. Like literally was for sale. Like if someone had came to me, I remember one time I just had an idea and I was p- pitching a CEO to be my partner on it. And I was actually thinking of saying, hey, you can buy it for X millions of dollars. I was thinking of saying that and I called my partner and he's like, he's just don't do that because he's, he's not going to buy a business that's one minute old for millions of dollars. <laughs> so I, I didn't do that. He did buy it later for 10 million, but that, after, that was after it was a proven business. But um, to answer your question, so to, to start, everything is for sale all the time. I would start thinking, who are your potential buyers? Mm-hmm. I would start thinking, what what is your equity value? Meaning, if you were to, when you, you know, the problem with like an ad agency, as an example, is what are the assets of an ad agency? When you shut the lights out, all, all the people are gone. And an ad agency depends on its people. Mm-hmm. So ad agencies sell for much less than software companies, because mm-hmm. software companies are very scalable. Mm-hmm. I can sell, with no additional cost, I can sell a million copies of software for the same as I can sell one copy of the software. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to decide how are you increasing the equity value of your business. Now, an ad agency, you could say, uh, has recurring contracts. So that's an asset of the business. Mm -hmm. So you have to think then, oh, we have a brand. Uh, Everybody knows us for this. That's an asset of the business. So you start collecting what are your assets that actually have value. You, and it's fair to say you're an asset of the business because when you sell the company, depending on how valuable you are to your business, you're going to have to sign, let's say, a three-year employment contract mm-hmm. or give back some of the proceeds of the business or you'll, maybe you'll get paid the final proceeds in three years. Mm-hmm. That's called an earnout. Uh, so you have to determine, is that something you want? You know, one time I had a fund of hedge funds that I thought was valuable enough to sell. So I got a deal together to sell it. We got we got an offer. I liked it. We got the deal. It was a it was a seven year employment. The deal specifically was a seven year employment contract for me. And if I ever quit at any point, I had to refund the entire Ugh. deal price. Or they could fire me fire me at any point without reason, and then I have to return the entire deal price. So I didn't realize the entire business was wrapped around the value of me. Yeah. So I shut that business down and mm-hmm. started a new business because. What was the point? I'm not going to do that business the rest of my life. The point of starting something is to sell it and make money and and yeah. live a good life. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, and then I would start courting your buyers early. Early. So let's say a potential buyer is I'm going to make it up 
Google. Mm. Well, find an area on Google you could talk to and say, hey, I have a product I would love to talk to you about. To Maybe you need to use this as a customer. Maybe Google needs your special, whatever, CRM product or, mm. you know, analytics product. I'd like to show you my analytics product. Maybe you can use this as a customer internally or my intranet product, Google HR could use this. Mm. And so you start to build relationships within all of your buyers and or you start to refer clients. So when I had an ad agency, I would refer clients to other ad agencies. Mm. So if somebody wanted a television commercial, I didn't do that, I did websites. So I would say, okay, this ad agency does television commercials. And I'd call them up, I have a client for you. Would you would you do Mitsubishi's television commercials? Uh-huh. And that's how I build great relationships with yeah. my potential buyers. Then huh. you, then I would say to them, you know, I'd meet them for lunch because they would want to meet like, oh, is this guy going to send us more business? And so they would want to wine and dine me a little bit. And I would say, let me ask your advice. I really want to, I really, here's the path to making a hundred million in profits for my business. And I would show a real path, but I feel like I don't want to raise money, mm. um, but I want a bigger partner. What's your, and I, you know, and I really like working with other bigger partners who I can offer more services to. Yeah. What's your advice that I should do? I don't really know what to do. And you're so good at this. Like, what, you, what should you do? What would you do if you were me? What are they going to say? They're going to say, hey, maybe we should buy you. Yeah. And that happens nine times out of ten. That, wow. the, the advice technique brilliant. works really yeah, well. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. But, but, but product, you know, productize, make connections, the advice technique, uh, have good long-term contracts with employees, with customers. Mm. Uh, have opportunities for scaling, whether it's brand or productizing, uh, you know, and then also to prepare, make sure you have a good, these are nuts and bolts, but make sure you have an audit because you're going to have to do that anyway. So if you don't have an audit done, it's going to, you don't, as soon as someone offers to buy your company, they're going to get buyer's remorse more than you're going to get seller's remorse. <laughs> and so they're going to say what they're going to say to themselves after a month, Oh my God, did I offer to buy this crappy company? And so you want to make sure the legal is done within that first month, which is really hard to do. Mm. So make sure you have an audit ready to go. Make sure you have your contracts ready to show. Uh, make sure your la- relationship with your landlord is good because he has to approve you making millions of dollars. Right. Because he, you're, he, you're no longer going to be his tenant. The buyer is going to be his tenant. Mm-hmm. So he has to sign off on the deal. Mm-hmm. This is something everybody forgets about yeah. and they have bad relationships with their landlords. Landlords, I'm not signing any approval here you're gonna to have to figure this out yourself and then you have to pay off your landlord and so aye, aye. so there's lots of there's yeah. lots of tricky issues and so and then make sure you're not make sure business is good that your business is not going to fall apart in yeah. the potentially three months it takes to close a deal uh-huh. because there's going to be a clause if the business has substantially changed the deal is off okay. and uh so that's that's a short answer as with all these questions there's much bigger answers but you know <laughs> A, your business is for sale. B, start getting it ready today. Awesome, awesome. So it's no, there's never, it's never too soon. To never start, too soon. Start figuring that out. No, I, I, the fastest business turnaround I had, I started a business, sold it four months later. What? Yeah. Oh my god, that's amazing. And I had, I had like good revenues too, and I had a million unique users to a Jesus. website, and sold it four months later. Holy crap! And then, and then, um, the worst business I started a business, raised money, shut it down a day later. Oh wow! But wired back all the money. Okay. <laughs> I didn't steal the money. It's like it was like Fire Festival too, so, or Theranos. Oh my God! Great documentaries, by the way. Circling back, 
bookending the television here. Yes. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Mr. James Altucher. Thank I appreciate you, Eric. you being I, on the show. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I hope I didn't talk too much and no, I hope I answered your questions. Not at all. If your listeners want to ask me more questions, ask me on Twitter at Jay Altucher. Yeah. Just ask me and I'll, I'll try to answer. M- mention your name and mention me and then ask a question and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer. Is that the best place to reach you on Twitter? You're everywhere. Um, yeah, it doesn't matter. You're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I'm not promoting. I, uh, don't even follow me on Twitter. Just you can you can ask the question without following me. I'm not trying to promote anything. And then he'll if you write him an email, he'll he'll write you five years later. And, uh, yes, that yeah. I I will do. I'm always surprised when people say I texted you and I'm like, oh, did I respond? Like and and they say yeah, it was really I'm really great. You really responded and it did change this for me. I'm really sort of surprised because I don't respond to almost anything. And so I'm always really happy. Like, oh, thank God I responded to this guy. It's <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Thanks, Eric. That's it for now, folks. If you'd like to stay in touch with the show, you can contact me directly at eric at onairbrands.com. That's eric, E-R-I-K at onairbrands.com. And if you aren't already subscribed to the show, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or any other podcast platform. And please recommend us to one or two people in your circle. That will go a long, long way to growing our community. Also, if you could rate us on iTunes, just take a moment uh, to give us five stars. And if they have more stars, give all of them. We'd greatly appreciate you for that. And always, always like, subscribe, And share, share, share this show on social media. We'd love you for that as well. And if you have any ideas or want to hear something on a future show, please hit us up. Maybe you have a question for one of my guests or you want to uh, tell a story, a success story. uh, We'd love to hear from you. You can do that, especially if you're on the Anchor platform. You can leave us a voice message. We'd love to incorporate you and your voice on a future episode. Once again, folks, thanks again for listening to the Entrepreneur Circle. Please like, subscribe, and share. Share, share, share. I am Eric Cabral, and as always, remember your network is your net worth. So get in the circle. <laughs>